Hi, I'm Lynn Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Frontmanner podcast, I'll be interviewing Zach Tellman. Based in Oakland, Zach is a software engineer and consultant who works on projects where he takes on the roles of newly hired principal systems engineer or architect, or where he provides recurring guidance and mentorship to software engineering staff. He also has released a number of open source libraries and is a popular conference speaker. Zach is the author of the LeanPub book, Elements of Clojure, which is meant for readers who know and use Clojure and want to use it more effectively, and to give teams a shared vocabulary for their Clojure-related discussions. You can read Zach's blog at ideolalia.com and follow him on Twitter at uh, ZTelman, or ZTelman, I should say, speaking to an American. Um, and you can check out the dedicated website for his book at elementsofclojure.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Zach's background and career, his professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience writing his book. So thank you, Zach, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you grew up and how you first became interested in uh, computers and software. Sure, yeah. Um, So I I grew up in the Bay Area. I haven't escaped very far. And... uh, uh, I played around with computers when I was younger, and I uh, started to get you know more seriously into the question of how to actually create software on my own when I was in high school, and decided that I really wanted to major in computer science. And so I, I went down to Southern California, uh, studied computer science, and uh, around my third year, uh, I very nearly dropped out because... Uh, there was something in software that really resonated within me that made me excited, that made me want to dig deeper into it. But the coursework that I was doing didn't evoke that in me. And uh, I remember I was doing a uh, course on compilers where they were doing this very tedious recursive descent parser where you had to just write all these things that were not hard but very particular. And I realized that if this is what my job was going to be, I was going to hate my job. And so I just stopped going and started to kind of look around and understand what else was there that might more reliably sort of evoke this this sort of uh, resonance. And so through that, I uh, came to the point where I had effectively a minor in philosophy and creative writing uh, before I realized that in everything that I looked at, there were pieces of it that really interested me and a great many other pieces that didn't. And I kind of tried to be as responsible as I could in uh, evaluating all of my options. And it seemed like there were the most uh, paths and most varied paths towards success in software. Uh, You know, to succeed as a writer, to succeed as a philosopher was a very, very uh, sort of narrow and difficult path to really successfully Uh, go down. And so I went into my first job sort of tentatively, not really quite sure what to expect. And it turns out that it was closer to really what I had done on my own than to what I did in my courses. Uh, And I kind of kept on pushing off in that direction. But there had been something that I kind of noticed, which was that I would have these moments of sort of recognition in something, right? Where something, as I said, it resonated. It was sort of a recognition of something in myself for a moment sort of outside of myself. And I had this with uh, some things in software, with uh, some philosophers, with some uh, writers. And I would try to explain them 
to other people, right? I would get very excited and I would start sort of trying to articulate this thing that really spoke to me. And, you know, 90% of the time I would completely fail, right? Uh, because whatever it was, either it wasn't, you know, it didn't mirror something inside the person I was trying to explain it to, or I was just very bad at explaining it. And in software, you know, this kind of uh, intuition I had, this, this aesthetic sort of reaction to I had to it, uh, was a pretty effective guide for how to create software. Uh, but the two problems were that uh, it wasn't always effective, right? Sometimes my intuition would mislead me, but also, again, I was really unable to articulate uh, effectively to somebody else why it was that I thought that, you know, we should go and do X instead of Y. And as a junior engineer in my first job, uh, the issue was that I would you know, say emphatically, we should do this and not this other thing. And people would, you know, ask me why, and I wouldn't be able to say, and we wouldn't end up doing that. And then later in my career, I would uh, say this, and uh, someone that I was uh, mentoring or supervising would ask me why, and uh, I wouldn't be able to explain it either. I mean, they would do it, but I wasn't able to actually give any sort of reasonable explanation for what it was that I... Uh, felt very strongly was sort of the right thing to do. And so, you know, through my career, uh, about four years in, I found a language called Clojure, which again, spoke to me, right? Uh, there was a sort of recognition of something that uh, reflected something in, you know, how I thought about software. And I went very deep on it. And I uh, was able to get jobs and work with it and, you know, create open source software. But still, there was kind of this unanswered question in my own mind, which was, you know, why, right? Why this? Why not this other thing? And Clojure being sort of a relatively new language, when I started it, people would often ask me, like, expect me to play the advocate for that language or for how I chose to use that language or, you know, any number of other things. And my best sort of most concise answer was, uh, it just fits my brain. Yeah, and, I wanted to. I wanted to. Want to take the opportunity to ask you about that there, um, for people who uh, are listening who might not be aware of what Clojure is. If you could explain a little bit about it, where it came from, and then and then yeah, I'm really interested in hearing what it was that you found a, a reflection of yourself uh, in it. Yeah. Uh, so Clojure is uh, a language in the Lisp family. Lisp. Uh, the Lisp languages started back in the '50s and have been this sort of uh, very uh, sort of sideshow within the whole pantheon of uh, languages, where there are many languages that were very uh, seen as very practical, seen as very workmanlike, and lists were always just sort of off to the side, uh, often in academia, sometimes in uh, the industry. And the best way that I've sort of had to explain to people uh, what it is that makes Lisp interesting is that, you know, if you've ever diagrammed a sentence in school where you have a sentence and that uh, sort of gets broken apart into the noun phrase and verb phrase and on and on, that represents the grammar. And this grammar is a separate structure from the text that you're typing in, right? There is this sort of parsing that occurs when you uh, first type this thing in. And the way that the language thinks about what you've typed and the way that you think about what you've typed are different, right? They're separated by that transformation from the plain text to this sort of parse tree. Uh, in Lisp, however, they're not, right? There is actually a very close one-to-one -one kind of relationship between what you're typing in and how the language itself thinks about what you've typed in. 
And so what that means is that you get to interact much more closely with the innards of the language and build your own sort of domain-specific languages atop the core of the language and be able to sort of create a surface area uh, that fits your problem very closely, right? The language can sort of rise up to meet the problem that you're trying to solve. And uh, this is not uh, unique to Clojure. Clojure is, you know, again, part of this sort of long lineage. But what makes Clojure interesting is that it builds atop Java, which means that it is able to build atop a uh, very large ecosystem, which is built up over the last, I don't know, 20 odd years, uh, but also is just due to its proximity to Java, a more palatable lisp within the industry. Right, people are able to leverage their pre-existing understanding. People are able to sell it more effectively to their bosses. People are able to slip it in, sort of unbeknownst to the people around them, into uh, projects that already are using Java or another language on the JVM language. And it also came out uh, around the same time as uh, a number of essays by a man named Paul Graham, who had popularized the list, has sort of uh, created this little mini renaissance where people were suddenly very interested in this old uh, kind of far off language. And Clojure uh, rode that wave very effectively. And so uh, that's that's kind of the short answer. Um, there, there are many more involved ones, but I, I think that that's not, this is not necessarily the forum to uh, get too deep into that. Yeah, and, and we'll, be, we'll be coming around to other aspects of it later, um, uh, in particular related to uh, the philosophy of language and the way you, you, you talk about things um, uh, there in your book and in your talks as well. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to um, circle back um, to the question of computer science itself and studying it at university. Um, one of the almost at this point official themes of this podcast, since so many people that I interview uh, are in software, is if you could go back, if you were starting out now, sorry, it's probably a better way of formulating it. Would you, and you were looking for a career in software, would you formally study computer science at university? I think I would, uh, but I don't think that I could justify that as a practical decision on my part. I, I find the academic study of computer science to be satisfying. Um, I didn't find the applications of it to be very interesting. I thought the concepts were very uh, sort of appealing. Uh, I've talked to a number of people who have asked me this question, and I think that you know the environment in which this decision is being made has changed quite a bit since I made it. But you learn a lot of things, and you cover a lot of topics, and most of them end up being irrelevant, right? This is true of pretty much any form of general education, is that most of the things that you learn don't end up being the thing that you actually spend your life doing. Uh, the reason that you do it is because you can't predict ahead of time which is the thing that you're going to be doing. Right. And really being exposed to all of these things uh, opens up potential paths that you didn't even know existed before. And, you know, within computer science, it's not as broad as, you know, all the possible other fields of study that you could pursue. But it is a pretty broad field. And there are a lot of very deep holes that you can kind of burrow into. And so I think it's somewhat valuable because otherwise what you do and what you specialize in is dictated uh, more by your first job or your first series of jobs, right? You almost sort of fall backwards into uh, what your sort of domain expertise is. And what 
the four-year program gives you is a, a little bit of perspective and maybe an ability to go and choose what it is you'd like to get deep on, right? To make that a deliberate rather than an accidental choice. And um, one of the benefits as well, I would add to uh, getting a four-year formal degree at university is that at least in the North American model, it gives you the opportunity to study other subjects, which is something that you uh, already mentioned that you took advantage of with philosophy. And I wanted to ask you about that. What, what, um, what were your favorite courses in philosophy? What, what, what did you find? What sort of philosophy did you find a reflection of yourself in? Um, I mean, by far, I think my favorite philosopher is Kierkegaard. Um, his, his doctoral thesis, The Concept of Irony, is probably my favorite piece of philosophical writing. Um, he is playful and plays with, I think, a sort of self-negation, this, this kind of uh, rarefication of his own ideas to the point where they kind of cease to mean anything. And, I mean, often I think he's actually taught an intro to, uh, intro to Buddhism for this reason. Uh, and, uh, but I think that, you know, it's it just kind of his, his whole attitude uh, and his approach to the sort of inquiry that he does, again, spoke to me. Uh, within the book, though, uh, the, the stuff that I built upon is uh, the work, early work in the analytic school. And I think that that's another thing which... Uh, I enjoy, though, it it veers into this kind of uh, absolutism in terms of talking about, like, what is and isn't interesting based on what is and isn't possible to have an absolute conclusion about. It's not willing to treat the exploration itself as something which is uh, worthwhile, even if you don't end up getting anywhere. And, I mean, you know, it was birthed by a bunch of logicians and mathematicians. And so, uh, you know, in the book, I kind of talk about why that mentality is a poor fit for software. And I think it is a poor fit for how I approach these sorts of things. So I think that there are definitely interesting results from the uh, stuff that they explore. But I don't think that the, the perspective that they bring to the world as a whole is uh, quite as in line with my own. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to discussing uh the latter uh, subject later on when we're getting more specifically to the subject of your book. Um, I did want to say since my first encounter of your philosophical interest was through your talks about the book uh, and through the book itself, I was a little bit surprised to hear you say Kierkegaard um, was your favorite philosopher. Um, I'm, I, I, my own sort of responses to philosophy when I was studying it are actually quite, quite similar to yours. There's a certain aridity and I guess I would say a kind of I what I take as a kind of naivete in the kind of analytic or even positivist just approach to the world like even before you get to any specific philosophy like this style of mind that I just find kind of unappealing even though the subjects like the, the actual things that are discussed can be fascinating and meaningful uh, but yeah so for someone like me a, someone like Kierkegaard who for example had a kind of complex philosophical project in which he wrote under different pseudonyms in order to coherently present different perspectives uh, is much more, much more interesting and much more, much more appealing. And to me getting at the heart of the heart of the matter in a way that, you know, uh, syllogisms about the barber of Venice or whatever it was are just, you know, not quite as compelling. Um, and so that that was your so philosophy was effectively a kind of minor for you. 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I actually uh, submitted my uh, request that it get put in my diploma, but I qualified. And likewise, sort of English or creative writing, I forget exactly what the program was. But, you know, that also uh, put me in contact with uh, the works of Italo Calvino and uh, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, A Thousand Plateaus, and... Uh, Donald Barthelme, though that doesn't have really any impact on, on the book here that we're discussing, but he's just, I think, one of my favorite uh, short form writers. And, you know, there was a period of time where I, I very much wanted to be a writer. I wanted to find a way to support my writing doing software. And uh, unfortunately, what I found was at the end of a full day of writing code, that sort of exhausted the same part of my brain that would be used to write prose. And, you know, I have friends who are in bands and uh, do software. And apparently that's something that they're able to kind of transition from much more cleanly. And I, I'm pretty envious of that, actually. But I really haven't written any form of fiction since I started working full time as an engineer, which is a, an enduring regret of mine. But at this point, I think I, I've just kind of gone far enough in that direction that I have to accept it. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've never heard anyone put it quite that way before. But um you know, one thing I like to shock my non-technical sort of friends with is the programmers are writers. Mm. Uh, that's what they do. They write. They're writing all the time. And I mean, essentially, instead of writing something like along the lines of fiction, they're writing arguments. Um, but nonetheless, it is writing. You, you have to you, you go off into your own mind. Sometimes the, the, the work is invisible, right? Sometimes just sitting there with your head in your hands, uh, you're doing harder work than, you know, you do when you're typing. Um, but it, it's, it's all very much in your head and it's, and it's specifically in letters and numbers and words and things like that. And so I can see that connection between the, the type of work being the same, uh, being pretty compelling. Um, uh, before I, I interrupted your first answer, when you were discussing your career, uh, you were talking about, you know, moving on into more senior roles. Um, and one thing I, I looked you up on LinkedIn when I was researching for this interview, and I've talked to people who've worked at a lot of different, uh, famous companies, you happen to have worked for Fitbit. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about what, what's the company culture like there? I've spoken to people about Google where I know you spent some time. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to just know a little bit about Fitbit. Um, I have nothing bad to say about the culture at Fitbit. Uh, I, I spent a fairly short uh, period of time there where uh, they had just gone public. And I came in to work on a very particular project. And uh, during that time, uh, so I, I say that I, I joined Fitbit because I was actually hoping to finance uh, the, my work on the book and my work on uh, some other projects by like working at Fitbit for a bit and then leaving. Unfortunately, in my tenure at Fitbit, the uh, stock went down by 85%. So uh, I, I joke that you know I tried to sell out, and apparently I'm, I'm not very good at that. So, uh, but you know, despite that, uh, I think that out of all of the public tech companies that I've you know, worked at or talked to people who worked at or anything, it's, it's probably in the top 5% of like healthy cultures where there isn't a, there isn't kind of a focus on tech for tech's sake. There is a very clear understanding of what the technology enables. Uh, there also is a nice kind of uh, thing, which is not made part of the culture so much as just a, a structural aspect of the business plan, which is because you're selling people fairly expensive pieces of hardware, uh, their data isn't something that you are incentivized to sell on to other people. Um, and 
that's very hard to get uh, to find, especially for me, where my sort of specialty is in building high throughput, low latency systems. And uh, most people hear that and they think, oh, you work on ads, which uh, I have and I didn't enjoy uh, as an industry or as a sort of uh, type of product to build. And so, you know, Fitbit was nice in that it allowed me to kind of flex those muscles, but, you know, in a different, towards a different end, basically. Um, and I did want to say, just with respect to what you're saying in terms of programmers being uh, writers, I actually have often said the same thing as sort of a form of kind of uh, being provocative, which is I say, there are two kinds of programmers, uh, those who think that programming is fundamentally math and those who think that programming is fundamentally literature, um, where... I define literature, uh, which you know I'm sure that this is not uh, the uh, a, a, an agreed upon sort of thing, but uh, literature is uh, kind of similar to what Borges says in Tulan Ukbar Orpus Tertius, where he describes a culture that says um, any wait time that you describe the universe, uh, you are subjugating all other aspects uh, to one aspect. Right. Uh, you're basically pulling out something and sort of alighting all the others. You're hiding them from view. And it's a it's a game. Right. It's a it's sort of a, a an attempt to go and make people look at things from a perspective which is maybe familiar, maybe unfamiliar. But it is willfully blinding yourself to something in order to make this one particular thing much more clear, which is not what math purports to do. Right. Math purports to be this uh, completely correct kind of perspective on things. It doesn't talk about the things that are ignored, right? It, it like doesn't even have any sort of formal representation there. And so this actually gets very much to the heart of the book, which we can sort of, you know, circle back to uh, later on perhaps. But, you know, do we see software as something which is fundamentally concerned with itself or fun fundamentally concerned with the environment that it's in, right? Do we acknowledge that there are parts of the environment that are not in our software, but that nonetheless we have to, you know, know about and care about? Yeah, why don't we talk about that right now, actually? That's a really fascinating aspect of your work. We can get more specifically to the book later, but on this subject, for example, uh, one way into it is um, you talk about, in a num number of places I found, the idea that someone brings part of themselves from like things they've previously done into new things that they're doing. And this can be as mundane as like if you get a new job, you sort of bring the culture of the last company you were with, you were in with you. Um, but, and I think you may have mentioned this already, uh, people who uh, sort of birthed um, programming were physicists. Mm -hmm. And they brought with them something from physics to their approach to software. Uh, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to explain a little bit about that because I know it's partially what, what I just very briefly, what I partly took away from it was the idea that physics is it has a constraint, which is the external world, which it, to which it has to kind of hew. Uh, whereas the environment that a software model is in, interacting with is itself constantly changing. So it's, it's, I mean, an analogy would be, tr imagine trying to do like experimental science in a universe in which the laws of nature were always changing. You know, experimental science works perfectly in a universe where the laws of nature don't change. So I can do an experiment on a water molecule here or a billion miles away or uh, a million years from now, and I'll get the same result. But it, that's a totally different model from what I 
think you you think or it's a very different model from the way you think people should optimally approach software right so i mean this actually kind of you can draw a through line between our earlier conversation about the analytic school and sort of the physics of the mid 20th century i think that the early to mid 20th century is a fascinating period in terms of almost every intellectual pursuit because all of a sudden things just started aligning and making sense. And we understood things, we understood them well enough that we could go and build things that took advantage of this phenomena. Uh, you know, I, you know, we go very quickly from this very sort of crude uh, chemical understanding of how matter works to say the transistor, right? And then we go from the single transistor to billions of transistors very quickly. And uh, that one is actually a little bit less interesting. That's almost mechanical, but like the the ability to go and f make that first transistor to build upon all the sort of understanding of these very amorphous kind of quantum effects that were discussed there, and and to actually be able to do that is is amazing. And I think that there was a period of time where people had this positive view that was very hard to falsify. Right, P things kept on getting clearer. And there was, it was, if you go and draw that sort of trajectory, uh, it was a straight shot or maybe even growing sort of exponentially. And there was no clear indication that would ever sort of taper off, right? Maybe we'd just continue to clarify uh, the world and our place in it uh, to ever sort of more dizzying heights. And so, you know, if you look at the analytics school, right, this is the first time they're playing with sort of any attempt to go and make math something which has a, a, form, a sort of firm foundation, right? The Principia Mathematica by, by Russell um, and, you know, Frege with his uh, sort of predicate logic and you sort of keep on sort of going on from there. And so it is, as you said, arid, right? It is, uh, I think, uh, sort of in this especially from our current perspective, seems filled with this sort of very bizarre hubris and this almost kind of uh, inhuman kind of focus on on taking people out of the equation. But I think that it, it was a, it's very understandable in the context in which it existed and also isn't clearly, it has value, right? Like the, the attempt to go and build these taxonomies, even if we can now look to them and say, oh, well, here's what they were ignoring. Uh, these are these are really admirable projects that people are undertaking. And so if you go and you sort of follow that through, right, from the, the early 20th century to the mid-century, uh, the computer arrives, right, and seems like this is sort of now this is a steam engine for this kind of intellectual progress that was being made. And, you know, maybe the only sort of real constraint over our ability to math things was the inability to do enough math fast enough and accurately enough. And now we have this thing that does it for us. And so if you look at the early projects with the computer, which are inevitably tied up in sort of defense spending and a whole other things, and you know, uh, that, that's kind of a, a tricky thing to disentangle, but all these people who were simultaneously talking about how to use a computer to you know, track radar blips were also talking about how computers were going to become this engine of exploration of sort of this intellectual territory that had until now been off limits to us. And this idea that we could go and we could just apply this sort of very simple logic, but just apply it very quickly and flawlessly would somehow like make things clearer than they had been ever before. 
And so there is a, a physics kind of aspect to that, or maybe just a, more generally, it is sort of a logical, mathematical kind of uh, perspective on it. But I think that, again, in the, the context which this existed, it makes perfect sense. However, I think that if you go and then you follow that through to the latter half of the 20th century, which is people's attempt to actually realize this vision that they had, uh, it's largely, I mean, at best it's been a mixed bag. And I think that generally you can say that uh, their expectations were, were completely uh, unfulfilled. Yeah, it's really interesting. You mentioned that. Thanks for that really great uh, introduction to, I guess, the intellectual, the, the, the place of the computer in intellectual history. Um, but uh, one thing you, you mentioned, uh, one word you used uh, more than once was clarity and, and versions of it. And one of the really interesting aspects that I, of analytic philosophy sort of speaking broadly was an epistemological association with styles of language, mm. which I'm not putting very well because it's been a long time since I've spoken about this. But essentially what they came to see was unclear language was a sign of unclear thinking. Mm. And so they had this, this I, I think, uh, sort of perverse association of a style arbitrarily considered to be clear with a certain, with a, with a correct way of thinking. Um, and so, and so this, 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 I mean, not to go too much into the weeds, but this is where you end up with a kind of uh, continental kind of, you know, divide in philosophy between kind of, you know, people who write in, in supposedly clear styles and people who write in obscure styles. Uh, but that, that it seems to me that there's a relationship between that, that sort of what we're, I guess, in this conversation calling a kind of physics mindset and wanting to narrow down the range of reference and somehow link that with a stable reality uh, in a way that doesn't necessarily match what needs to be done in, in software in an environment that's always changing and where things are always new and things like that. Um, for example, I mean, I think this is associated with you, you write about how software design is an intractable problem, which is someone with the mindset we're describing, you know, whether it's in analytic philosophy or, or in let's say physics, they don't want the, the idea of intractable problems is very troubling. Um, you know, because what does that say about the underlying reality? And, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about just on that, focusing on that spe specific idea that software design represents an intractable problem. What does that, what does, why is that? Right. Well, I, I mean, to, to wave my hands very broadly around this, I mean, uh, you know, anyone who's listening to this and hasn't read the book, um, I recommend that you do because I'm sure that this is going to, is going to present this a lot more. Uh, in, a, in a better order than we are here in this interview. But uh, in general, you can go and you can think about physics, getting back to that sort of idea, as something that's trying to pull every relevant aspect of the world inside of a model. And that works for physics because physics is able to oftentimes sort of reduce itself to, you know, uh, what does one frictionless sphere do to another frictionless sphere? Um, it's able to uh, invent... A, a problem wherein all of the aspects are completely defined and then hope that that sort of uh, can get bootstrapped up into a reasonable prediction of what the real world would do. Um, and with software, we don't really have that luxury because we are dealing with problems that don't lend themselves to that sort of artificial simplification. 
And so we can't go and pull every relevant aspect of the world within our software, right? We're, we're up against our own mental limitations very, very quickly, uh, well before we, we even get anywhere near sort of representing the world in our software. And so then it becomes a question, right, again, of this, you know, it's a, it's a literary question, which is what do we get to ignore? Um, and or rather, what uh, what can we ignore? Right. What are what are the very few things that we should not ignore? And the problem with that is that if you do that perfectly, right, um, if you do the, the you know, Antoine Saint-Exupéry, you know, there's nothing left to take away. Uh, that is uh, beautiful, maybe, but also incredibly fragile because your judgment there was entirely based upon the context in which you previously or, or currently exist. And as the world around you changes, as inevitably does, that invalidates this perfect minimal set of things that you've decided to, to represent. And the fact that we don't do that is, you know, represented by or, or illustrated by the fact that, you know, we, we are building our software atop, you know, decades old pieces of infrastructure, right, which were built to solve decades old problems atop decades old hardware. And there's a lot of weird little cruft in there that is like commented out or, you know, paths that are, are rarely taken and occasionally people try to tidy it up. But, you know, we, we don't have the luxury of being completely minimal in any of these cases, but we try to be as minimal as possible because if we let that go too far, then it gets out of control and all of a sudden we lose our thread, right? We lose our ability to actually orient ourselves within this thing that we've built. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, there are actually two different ways you can approach that, which is you, the person who built it, are you still keeping that uh, track of what you've built, right? And certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's very easy to get past that. But then also, if someone new comes along, can they follow you to where you've arrived, right? Or have you basically left everyone in the dust, right? And I think that, you know, it depends on who your audience is. So if you're writing a doctoral thesis, you only need to bring along, you know, a handful of people along for the ride. And they're, they're sort of mostly down that path. If you're trying to bring a lay person down it, then you have to be a lot more uh, parsimonious in terms of what you choose to acknowledge and what you don't. And, you know, all of these just kind of combine into this problem where it may be intractable. I mean, I've used that word and I think it's, it's a good word, but the, the, real point here is that what we don't have, which is a thing that we want, because that sort of pokes at the pleasure center of the engineer brain is a single scalar value that says, here's how good my software is, right? And then I get to twist something or tweak a bit and say, is it better now or is it worse, right? And we don't have that and we will never have that. That is, that is an unattainable goal. And I think that that is something which people like to treat as a temporary uh, sort of lamentable state of affairs as opposed to uh, an intrinsic part of what we do. And, and I spend maybe a little bit too much of my book kind of trying to drive that home because I think that that idea that we are just living in the prelude to a golden age of software is frankly holding us back. Uh, and if it's holding us back, what's it, what's it holding? How would you characterize what it's holding us back from? Well, um, you know, as you say in, uh, you know, if you go to this four, sort of four-year program, there's a chance to get exposed to a very broad range of ideas. And, you know, in, a, in the current uh, curriculum for a four-year computer science program, uh, there is a very uh, 
narrow sort of focus, right? There's some mathematics. There's a, a, another sort of closely related branch of mathematics, which calls itself computer science. And uh, I took one ethics course uh, when I was there uh, in, in my four-year program, which was, you know, talked about the handful of times software has killed somebody and says, don't do that. Um, did not really, I think, deal with any sort of issue, which, you know, even approaches the complexity of the trolley problem in terms of software, which, you know, means it, it wasn't much of a course, frankly. Um, and that's about it, right? I mean, you know, there, there's not really any attempt to contextualize software in the world or to understand the world and how uh, the software that currently exists or, you know, will exist in, you know, within our lifetimes will shape it, right? How these things sort of interact with each other. And I think that if you acknowledge that uh, the tools of mathematics are not sufficient, then you start to sort of reach into the humanities and you can maybe pull that in and maybe you can have people who don't know that they need to be curious when they're in their four-year program are forced to be, are exposed to these sorts of things because we acknowledge that this is actually very close to the core questions of software and require, you know, a grounding in this sort of wider set of uh, questions in this broader sort of uh, intellectual tradition. Yeah, uh, it, that reminds me before, I'm, I'd like to ask you about abstractions um, and this relationship between, um, you know, the, the model that one's building in a piece of software and, and the world. Um, but before that, I have just a brief anecdote about, I think, I think that's partly related to what um, you're talking about, where there's a certain desire to achieve a kind of finality or, or single solution. Um, I was interviewing Jerry Weinberg um, a few months ago now, um, and he talked about how he was, he, I mean, the first computer he ever, he ever uh, encountered was himself. Um, uh, but um, so he was, he was there for the, 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 the ride when the, all of this got going. And he was there early days at IBM when IBM was becoming a computing company. And he, he has this great anecdote, which I'll get slightly wrong, but about the executives realizing that there was going to be this thing called programming that was going to ha be happening. And they wanted it standardized and they wanted it tied off in a, with a nice little bow uh, forever uh, so that there would be no more thinking that had to be done along those lines. So it, it, he, doesn't, he didn't say this exactly, but effectively in their ideal world, there's one programming language and there's one set of uh, practices and it's, doesn't, and it's final and it doesn't change and essentially, essentially kind of becomes effectively automated. Um, and you were reminding me of that, you know, there's, there's people who kind of naturally seem to be driven towards that type of situation as a solution to problems. And then there's the one you're describing, I think, which is, uh, can be contrasted to that where there's ever evolving contexts that are kind of inherently beyond our capacity to fully capture either in ourselves or in any, any kind of model that we build. Um, so on that note, um, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your, your interesting idea of, of, of abstractions and how you talk about it in your, in your talks and, and in the book. Right, right. So um, the commonly given definition of abstraction in the context of computer science, uh, the, this definition is broadly mirrored in a lot of other fields, but it kind of varies depending on, on what the field is. Uh, it comes from a 1972 paper by Tony Hoare. Uh, called um, Proof of Correctness of Data Representations. And, you know, again, notice that in this title, it's talking about mathematical proofs, right? Um, and he says that there is this thing called a model, which is contained within the abstraction, which is broadly its sort of representation of what's outside of it, 
right? This this thing is populated by its environment. It's it's meant to kind of sort of reflect a facet of its environment. And uh, then this this model has an interface, and the interface and the model have this sort of flexible relationship because the interface is a very simplified version of what's going on inside of it, right? It exposes certain semantic details but hides most of the others. And the nice thing about that is that now we can sort of play shell games where uh, we keep the interface but we change the underlying model depending on our needs, right? And so we can go and we can build software atop the interface and now on either side there's this uh, sort of ability, this this flexibility, right? This ability for us to go and sort of change this. Uh, but what uh, what the paper doesn't discuss at all is, you know, what's going on outside of the abstraction, right? What we're trying to do is we're trying to, in this paper, construct a proof that this is a correct abstraction. And, uh, you know, so this relationship between the model and the environment, right, this is not spoken of. This is just sort of the, the focus of the book. And uh, the problem with this, right, even the problem with the, the idea of correctness as a property that we have within reach uh, is – that it is a sort of immutable property, right? Uh, as you and you know that is also, as you said, what physics is sort of treat, like looking for is a sort of immutable truth, right? What is the ultimate, unchanging truth that we just have to go and recontextualize within an environment? But you know, fundamentally, once we learn this, then we have it, right? Um, and you know, this this speaks very much to this sort of uh, I, I don't know how many physicists that you've uh, spoken with, especially when they're first learning it, but there's a kind of a, uh, uh, you can choose to find it amusing sort of uh, perspective, which is, you know, physics is at the core of everything. So, you know, chemistry, that's just physics and biology, that's just chemistry and uh, psychology, that's uh, just biology. And so really, you know, I'm, I'm at the er, you know, point in all of this. And really, you're all just a bunch of, you know, uh, frictionless spheres bouncing off each other. And, you know, I, I, in the most reductive sense, maybe even that's true, though. I, I think it's not, uh, according to the most recent models, but there's basically that's an uninteresting perspective, right? There's an uninteresting sort of conclusion uh, because the question is not, is this something where if we had infinite time, like we could actually go and calculate what goes on in this clockwork universe? It's what is a useful thing that we can know? What is a heuristic, right, that we can use here to kind of to actually interact with the world around us as the world is changing around us, right? Because we are not able to, uh, even with the aid of computers, respond in real time to these sorts of things, uh, you know, in any sort of uh, effective sort of from first principles way. And so I like to say that, you know, mathematics is concerned with being self-consistent, Right, this thing does what we expect it to do, but correctness implies that there's uh, a property which survives being dropped into any context, and I think that that's that's provably, obviously false. And so, a better question is, what makes a useful abstraction? Right, what is an abstraction which is useful in the subset of environments we expect it to be dropped into? And so that's really what the book it focuses on a lot, which is, you know, how do we build useful software and how do we judge whether a software is useful? And if we judge it to be not useful, uh, what are some reasonable steps we can take to kind of fix that? Uh, the problem with this is that I'm trying to go and talk about software in general. And of course, there is no general software, right? And I don't want to go and sort of overfit. And so I, I end up kind of talking a lot about these generic concepts and then rely on the reader to uh, sort of add 
water and be able to actually turn this into a, a meaningful kind of framework that they can use to, to think about or talk about their software. And I mean, you know, frankly, it's, it is still an ongoing project. I don't know if I've, I've hit the mark there, but it, that's, that's the problem, right? Is that you do, abstraction is useful and it is necessary because otherwise all you're doing is just recounting, you know, uh, an anecdote about your life. But uh, you're asking more of the people that you're talking to, the more abstract you become. And, and frankly, I think the book, as it's written, demands a lot from the reader. Uh, but I, I just I don't know another way to kind of uh, accomplish my goal without doing that. Um, it's uh, I really liked the distinction uh, that you drew between correctness and self-consistency. Um, and I'm wondering I would, wanted to ask you, is that related to uh, your thoughts on the difference between software engineering and, and civil engineering? Um, mm. Where you know, for example, like I can kind of, and, and you talk about this in something that's come up on this podcast many times, partly because it's of interest to me is, you know, people often go, well, why can't software work like bridges where it's like, you know, it's, it's, I mean, most of the time, hopefully all the time, but we know that's not the reality, but that's for different reasons. Um, you kind of can solve problems in civil engineering in a way that you can't solve problems in software engineering. Right. I mean, so I, I think that this this question, uh, you know, it, it's said a lot and uh, it's it's, you know, one of my my most uh, this is a question which is sort of, you know, at this point very irritating to me because I think it's sort of akin to asking, why don't you build the plane out of the black box? Right. Like, you know, I mean, fundamentally. uh we don't build software the way that we build bridges because we don't build software that solves a single fixed problem that is there for all time. And in the book, in a footnote, um, I say, you know, this is a bad metaphor. But, and if you're looking for a better physical metaphor, and all physical metaphors are flawed because you never run out of space in software, right? I mean, in software, if you build the ideal home, building it once means that everyone gets to use it. And so there's not the, there's, it's the way in which these things like deal with scarcity are so different that it, it you're probably just going in and misleading yourself by trying to make a metaphor but city design is at least a closer thing because the needs of a city and the needs of the inhabitants of its city are constantly changing and notably if you go and give everything that the citizens of a city uh, or the inhabitants of the city want they're just going to ask for more right they're going to invent new things that uh, they need to be happy uh, with their lives and that constantly moving uh, kind of goal, that, that threshold of sufficiency, is the fundamental property about software that we need to go and sort of acknowledge and, and you know, uh, maneuver with respect to. And so I think that like, there's some interesting things about city design, but again, it, it's an imperfect metaphor for all the reasons that I mentioned and probably a lot more that I haven't even thought of. So I, it, it's you know, uh, used with caution, I guess. Um, you say it's it's uh, some of the thoughts you're trying to convey in the book are sort of inherently difficult to convey. Um, uh, I don't want readers or potential readers to be left with the idea that your writing is not entertaining because it is. Um, and that reminds me of an example I came across first in your talk uh, where you transition. You talk about the idea that possession doesn't imply understanding. And you very colorfully go from the young King Arthur pulling the sword from the stone to Baudrillard. Uh, to machine learning. Um, and I was wondering if you could, I mean, one of the interesting things about your work is that you're, you have all these different things to draw on 
that one normally doesn't seem drawn upon together. And so I was wondering if you could actually, if you can recall it, if you can walk us through that little, that little sequence of steps from, you know, King Arthur to, to machine learning. Sure, absolutely. So there's a really common uh, sort of scenario when you're uh, building software where you become very familiar with some tool and become very familiar with its shortcomings, right? Uh, and, and learning the shortcomings of a tool is a, a long and fairly laborious process because you need to go and use it in a bunch of different situations and get a feel for where it is and isn't effective. But notably, if you go and you look at, say, an open source library, there are very few open source libraries that will say front and center, here's what this library is bad at. Here's what it's not meant to be used for, right? What it will do is it will try to pitch itself as, you know, this sort of all-seeing, all-dancing kind of thing that will solve all of your problems. And if not, that's just because I haven't, you know, come out with, you know, VN plus one yet. And... You know, again, this speaks to the uh, our unwillingness to acknowledge that abstractions are sort of contextual things and are not meant to solve all problems. You know, but it's also, I think, just that you know, culturally, it's hard for us to go and say, "I built this thing, I spent a lot of time on it, and here's why it sucks." Right? That that's a difficult thing for any creator to do. Um, and so, what this means, though, is that if we go and we use a thing and we become very familiar with its shortcomings, someone comes out with a new thing. And we look at it and we see the exterior of that thing, right? The readme uh, of that thing, which says, here's what I do. And without, you know, acknowledging any of those weaknesses, all we see are the good parts, right? And so what we're comparing now is this very sort of apples and oranges situation where we, we see through the one thing, right? We see through to all of its flaws. And to the other thing, all we see is sort of its nice, shiny exterior. And we're like, oh, well, this is better, right? We should use this. And... You know, in fact, this is a, you know, almost kind of uh, cliched kind of example of what a junior engineer will do, right? They'll, they'll jump on the new thing because they hate the old thing. And, uh, you know, of course, that just means that, you know, a year later, they'll, they'll hate the, the new thing and, you know, look to the new, new thing. And the point that I make is that this is a very common sort of pattern where what we focus on is not our understanding of a thing. Understanding is not... Uh, a property that we think is sort of important when judging something. It's the possession that matters, right? And so, uh, you know, I, I say that, you know, if we look at King Arthur, King Arthur was able to pull, pull the sword from the stone because he had the right bloodline, because he was kingly, right? He was wise, he was uh, brave. But, like, those are, at least in the context of, uh, you know, sort of the Arthurian period, totally subjective. And so the only objective fact here is that he holds the stone in his hand, uh, the sword, rather, in his hand, and that's, that's what we focus on, right? And in a very real way, the sword is what makes him kingly, is what makes him brave, is what makes him have the right bloodline, right? Uh, another example I give in the book is uh, this sort of concept of the philosopher's stone, where, you know, uh, you might think that this is sort of meant to be some sort of allegory, right? Every masterful, you know, alchemist goes and builds a philosopher's stone. But like in the actual literature, it's meant to be this physical thing, right? It's it's red, it's heavier than gold, it can be ground down, it can heal all sickness, it can extend life. Um, and, you know, the implication of that is like, if I go and have the philosopher's stone in my pocket, and it falls out, and someone else picks it up, now they have all the power for power of a master alchemist, right? They don't need to understand all the things that went into the making of it. It's it's just the MacGuffin, right? It's the thing. And uh, 
I think this might be somewhat more uh, common in sort of like Western canon than it is in other cultures, but it's, it's you know, all the same, I think a very sort of human thing is to focus on the, the external sort of aspects of it and to focus on the possession of something as the most important part. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's sort of you know, the, the slightly meandering version of, of what you're talking about there. And I do mention uh, simulac uh, Simulation and Simulacra by uh, Baudrillard. Um, which, as, which, as, which uh, people who are listening who may not have read it will recognize from its brief appearance in The Matrix. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. I mean, it's 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 a very. Uh, I mean, like, in, but this is sort of the broader point that I try to make here is that you know these questions. You know, we we talk to ourselves and like we say, oh well, you know, software it's new, right? Computers they're they're half a century old. We're still just kind of getting our bearings. We have a lot of stuff that we have to go and think about and refuse to acknowledge the sort of broader intellectual tradition we sit within, right? The fact that the questions that we're asking, which is how do we deal with something which is too big to fit in our head, like is a millennia old question, right? There are so many different answers to that and so many perspectives on that and so many things which we might read and might recognize as a, as a you know, distorted reflection of what we do on a daily basis. But most people who study software um, will never come into contact with that unless someone kind of shoves it in their face, right? And, and I think that the only real antidote to that um, is really the sort of the conference model where people will go up and give talks and kind of give a, a small little glimpse into a different uh, path of study that they could have taken that's sort of digestible within 40 minutes or so. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's good, but it, it's certainly not, um, it's not a solution, right? That's a, that's a bandaid. Yeah. You're, um, yeah. Thanks for that. Your, your, um, uh, invocation of, of simulations and simulacra, um, drew together a couple of interesting things for me about this idea of possession, not implying understanding necessarily. Um, one is that, one of the fascinating things about that book as, as a historical artifact is that it was, it was about reality TV <laughs> uh, and the kind of first, the first instance of reality TV, I think. Um, and so what Baudrillard is partly talking about is how the representation of something, and this is crude and wrong, but the representation of something can, can make it real in a way. Um, it also reminded me of one of my favorite examples of that, same type of thing that I, that I wouldn't have put in the terms of possession doesn't imply understanding, although that's better than the way I would normally put it is people often assume that a businessman understands the economy <clears throat> or a business person, I should say, uh, because they possess a business because they're presented as being associated with money and its accumulation. They both are assumed and assume of themselves that they understand this thing that no one credibly claims to understand, which is the economy because it's too big. It's too big for us. But there is this, and as you, you, you've invoked, there is this, we all have this very deep drive to have things be kind of containable and understandable. And, you know, the idea that you can have these kind of, you can do something e actually really easy, like start a business. Um, I didn't say succeed at it, but starting one and owning one is not hard. And then you can sort of present yourself as understand, even to yourself as understanding this giant thing. It's, it's just very tempting to have these substitutions set up uh because they make it us feel better about ourselves and the world uh when when things can be beyond us right and i think that i mean you know there, there's a lot of commentary we could go off and veer off into you know uh the fact that 
in I think the gold rush, people who you know found a successful gold mine here in San Francisco were not then asked, you know, you seem to understand so much about money, and yet we seem very willing to ask that same question of someone who's you know started a startup and you know, in many cases was just you know in the right place at the right time with their particular idea. But uh, I think that you know specifically with respect to software, um, this focus on this idea of possession is especially uh, dangerous given the sort of idea, like the current sort of fascination with machine learning, which is, I think, something that you mentioned I, I didn't actually go into, which is we build this thing which has these sort of emergent properties, and we think that because we defined some aspect of how it was created that, you know, our understanding somehow carries through to all of the consequences of our decisions, Right. That, that by defining the seed, we understand, you know, the, the plant or the forest or the, you know, all the other sort of consequences of this, this one action. And I think that if you go and you talk it through, people would be like, oh, well, no, that's, that's not actually what I think. But I think that we don't, we don't poke our own sort of, uh, you know, uh, hot air balloons of self-regard there very often. We, we're not uh, sort of wired to do that. And so we will go and we'll do stuff. And I think that, you know, we're starting to see this now with self-driving cars, which is, frankly, I think a little bit terrifying. And I, the engineers that I know who uh, are knowledgeable of these things, more knowledgeable in most cases than I am about the sort of specific techniques that are being used, um, sort of are split 50-50 between sort of uh, horror and kind of glee in terms of, you know, the fact that there's so much new stuff to figure out, but also we're just kind of pushing forward without first pausing to figure it out, right? And I mean, again, we can look back to sort of the, the early to mid 20th century where, you know, in the Manhattan Project, they had a ball of uranium, a little sphere that was like in the entryway to one of their buildings. People would rub it for good luck. It was like, you know, it was a little bit warm to the touch. And, you know, most of the physicists uh, predictably died of cancer, you know, at a, at a relatively young age because they, like, they understood it, but they didn't really understand it, right? They didn't understand everything. And some of the things that, you know, uh, some of the factors there probably wouldn't have been understood even if they had tried without, like, decades of actual study. And they didn't have decades, right? And so this was a sacrifice that they made. Um, but, again, there, there's that same kind of hubris i think at play there and it's it it worries me it worries the hell out of me um that's interesting i don't want to go down this i mean i do actually want to go down this road um but i know we probably shouldn't for more than we'll time box it in just a couple of minutes uh but this is actually a, a preoccupation of mine in particular um and one thing so i guess my brother and i have a joke that there's like an infinite number of ways you can divide the world up into two types of people um and i'm definitely on the side of a million people are dying a year in car accidents. What if, if there is a problem with, you know, us not knowing what's going on inside the black box of machine learning, that's a problem that I'm concerned about, but like it's sort of inversely proportional to my concern about what is it about us that lets us live with this current situation as though it's okay, which is just a way of kind of flip, flipping flip, like, you know, talking about an entirely different dimension of a of a of a problem i mean and, and i don't have a good answer to that and i mean this gets back to this sort of thing where like we understand very deeply the shortcomings of the current model and understand only the potential of the new one hmm. and so like 
maybe you could say, well, it couldn't be much worse, right? Which is the the sort of antithesis to you know the devil you know. But uh, I think that it's hard, and you know, any decision we make there is pretty much by definition not a rational one. Um, and I think that you know also as accidents occur, as you know they just did recently, uh, you know we can go and we can sort of reevaluate. Um, sort of the the different uh, approaches here, but it's it's more worrisome to me because there is there is this veneer of mathematical certainty sort of smeared across the top of this enormous opaque thing that's just kind of accreted, and uh, that's that's not the right way to be thinking about that, right? And so, I mean, you know, maybe we go and we, we if we looked at that with clear eyes, we would still do exactly what we're doing right now. But uh, the way that we're sort of understanding this, the, the sort of visceral understanding we have of these, uh, these models that we're creating are not, I think, uh, accurate. Um, you mentioned uh, piercing the hot air balloon of self-regard, uh, and that reminded me of something you wrote about narrative fallacy and open source. Um, and I <laughs> wanted to take at least a few minutes in this interview because I know you've done, you've created some open source libraries, uh, and that's an important part of what you've done. And I wanted to ask you about that that specific question: what what is the narrative fallacy in open source, and what what's your rather pointed opinion? About that, assuming it hasn't changed since you wrote them. No, no. I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that because, I mean, so we, we've, I've spent a, a lot of my life doing open source work. Um, and I think that for a while I was doing it without really even having articulated to myself why it was a thing that I felt like I ought to do. Um, it took me some time to kind of uh, reach any sort of level of clarity on that. And... Um, I, I mean, so there is this kind of very well-defined narrative, which is from this really odious guy named Eric Raymond, uh, who, uh, you know, reflects kind of the worst of the early parts of the libertarian internet. And, uh, but he's famous, and he's famous because he basically uh, built this narrative wherein he was the archetypal sort of hero which is to say that someone who had a problem that they were trying to solve and he inserted himself into this vast network of people who had similar problems and uh, sort of in this emergent way, they, they solved the problem in a better way than any individual person could have, right? And he coined this term called Linus's Law, um, which was sort of meant to be about Linux, which is, um, I'm, I'm going to get the exact uh, text wrong, but it's... Uh, with enough eyes, every bug is shallow. Um, and the idea is that basically, you know, the law of large numbers just makes it like, you know, possible for us to write better software than any one expert could ever do. And, you know, he's not wrong, but the the narrative fallacy in terms of how I'm, I said this is that it, it presumes that basically because this happened, right? Because the Linux kernel was created, because this this enormous community of people sort of built around this, that that was either inevitable or uh, even desirable to most people who create open source. And, you know, I mean, this, this kind of gets back to this, you know, you could go and talk about any creative endeavor, right? You know, anyone who's going and uh, you know, writing a little bit of fiction or writing whatever wants to create the great American novel. Anyone who's writing an essay wants to become a public intellectual. You know, I mean, these sorts of outcomes, they exist, but they're not 
the common outcome and to assume that basically there is a strict hierarchy where some people just got further up that single ladder than other people is kind of absurd, right? If, if you if you stop to think about it even for a moment. And so, you know, towards the end of my stint of being very focused on these sorts of open source projects, um, I started to get a little bit burnt out. And I realized that the, main, the maintenance of the project, the, uh, the kind of uh, construction of this community around it wasn't what was motivating me. What was motivating me was that this was an exercise in understanding something. And once I understood it, um, it wasn't that I would run away necessarily, but it, it lost a lot of the allure for me. And in some cases, uh, I would learn enough and I would have this kind of horribly incomplete thing and I would never even see the light of day. In some cases, it would be something where in order for me to understand whether or not I had built something that was useful, I had to see if people used it, right? Whether or not it fit their needs and then go to adapt that and then update my own understanding. And I can credit, I think, a lot of my insights such as they are about software to this period of my career where I was extremely focused on building these abstractions, building these interfaces that were meant to be these sorts of general solutions to these problems and then just seeing if people came to me and said, this doesn't solve this particular case that you weren't even aware was a thing before. And I'd have to kind of fold that in and figure out how to sort of, you know, uh, extend what I had built to fit whatever it was that they were trying to do. But that's it, right? I, I wanted to learn. And it was a fundamentally kind of selfish, greedy kind of motivation there. And in this essay I wrote, which is called uh, In the Shadow of Giants, or uh, Standing in the Shadow of Giants, um, was basically me just kind of talking about the fact that I think that most people who do open source work are not trying to go and build a log cabin and then wait for a city to grow around them. I think most of them want to be on the frontier. And that frontier is a moving target, which means that as people start to show up, they inevitably get pushed further out. And this is absolutely a thing that you can observe in any open source community. And the fact is, is that I think that we understand this as part of the sort of social mechanics, but we still have this just one narrative that was like posited in 1998 uh, as like the one true thing that open source projects are aiming for. And so I think that, you know, we need to go and we need to be more honest with ourselves. And I think that we need to not just have this sort of implicit understanding of what goes in and there, but actually start to like create a vocabulary for this because now like if we have a shorthand for it, then people can actually have meaningful conversations. And, you know, this, this gets back to sort of the, the question of the questionable merits of the analytics school, because I lean on that pretty heavily in some parts of the book, but like, you know, they, they provide a taxonomy. The taxonomy is not perfect. It uh, purposely ignores a lot of nuance there. But, you know, a reductive taxonomy is better than none at all, because like without that, we're just kind of reduced to, you know, making grunts and pointing at things. And actually, that that's a really great segue into my next question. But I'm going to going to preempt it with just a, an, uh, an interesting observation about that essay. Um, I really enjoyed the way you set it up with the image of uh, you don't put it in these terms, essentially, but an association that people have historically drawn with the American the advancements on the American frontier and advancements in, let's call it civilization. And you have this great little joke where it's like, the only problem was that when civilization, civilization arrived on the frontier, the 
frontiersmen kept moving or some some proportion of them just kept moving because that civilization was the last thing they wanted that's why they were that's why they were on the frontier uh in the first place right and i think that that's the thing is that like and and we we say oh wow these people they were they were such pioneers they so clearly wanted the american way of life to go westward and well, no they wanted to escape it right they wanted to get away from this structure of civilization and maybe at some point uh, you know, they had enough property that they wanted someone to come along and, you know, protect it for them, right? That's not to say that people's understanding of what they want might not change over the course of their lives, but to, to say that basically there is this sort of collective urge towards the creation of this enormous, complex, uh, sort of intertwined thing uh, is is ridiculous, right? And And if we go and we say that, like, the... And again, this is nerd fallacy, which is like the end, you know, is prefigured by everything that was coming before and everyone knew that that's where they were going and they were trying to get there as opposed to like that was just kind of an accidental result of all these things that people did for reasons that are diverse and sometimes antithetical to the actual outcome. Um, yeah, I also wanted to uh, just just very briefly before moving on. Thank you for I, I, I probably I actually know I don't know what kind of uh, I might be stepping in with this because I I sort of. I've been in the startup space for a while now, but I came from a non-technical background. And I remember the jarring moment when I was reading um, Eric Raymond's Cathedral in the Bazaar, which I was you know, thoroughly enjoying. And then he referred to Ayn Rand as a philosopher. Um, and uh, yeah, I can see you, uh, SMH. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I thought, oh, like, I mean, both, both I was kind of, you know, a little bit of, you know, puke in the back of my throat but at the same time it was like i know that there's some intellectual background that he's coming from that i don't share um and when you mentioned just now that he was part of a kind of libertarian uh part of the discussion that that really actually settled a long-term long-time question i've had that i didn't i didn't have an answer to um so thanks for that. Um, yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're actually curious about this, like he, he, he was a maintainer of this thing called the jargon file for a very long time, which was his attempt at defining like what, what is the ideal like quote unquote hacker culture or hacker personality or whatever. And was basically, you know, his way of saying uh, the ideal archetype is me. It's me. Hi, I, I am, you know, the, the archetypal hacker. And uh, he's not a bad writer. And uh, he doesn't have – is not like completely devoid of valid points. But I, I mean you know, speaking of Hot Balloon's full self-regard, like that's him, right? And, and it's, it's frustrating because I feel like um, uh, his whole sort of you know, narrative that he built around his like heroic journey in uh, the open source community sort of hijacked – a lot of the conversation in a very unproductive way and hijacked a lot of people who were first starting out um, because people will go and they will emulate like for the same reason that people will go and read the biographies of famous, you know, physicists or scientists or whomever. And people will try to go and make the early points of their lives coincide with the early points of their hero's life, um, even though that doesn't actually control the outcome in the least. And I think that, you know, you have people who, you know, you can go and you could admire some small aspect of what they've done, but then to go and try to emulate them is, is, uh, you know, counterproductive at best. Um, on the subject of, uh, productive emulation, 
um, moving back to your book, um, you had a really interesting approach when you started when you started thinking about writing your first chapter, as I understand it, um, which was I want to write about naming in in software uh, production um, or development, and uh, I want to not start entire necessarily start entirely anew. What if there's a framework out there for naming and for understanding uh, language that I can draw upon? And you you as as you mentioned just uh, a few moments ago. Uh, you know, you you found a framework like that in um, analytic philosophy. Uh, specifically, um, you talk about Frege's uh, concept of a, a sense, um, and I wanted just to give 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 listeners an an, uh, an example of actually how useful this sort of other to most people kind of obscure aspect of a philosophy of language actually can be uh, when you're thinking about like doing something very pragmatic involving other people where you're building a shared vocabulary, which is, which is naming things in software. So yeah, could you talk a little bit about that, about, you know, reference and sense and things like that? Sure. Yeah. So, um, the classic way that, that sense is presented. So in, in the philosoph philosophical discussion of names, you have a thing, which is a sign, which is like the textual representation of name and you have the referent, which is the thing to which it refers, right? And, you know, uh, there were a lot of uh, different sort of uh, takes on this. Uh, Plato in Cratylus says, you know, uh, names actually reflect your inner character, um, which apparently now if you have a like a name like from Dickens, which is like uh, I can't even think of a good Dickens character name now. But Mr. Crook. Yeah, sure. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's go with the let's go with the obvious ones. Uh, those are cradlic names, right? Names which are sort of meant to go and uh, establish who they are without you even knowing who they are yet. Um, and that obviously isn't true. And so then like the kind of the, the philosophical consensus was, you know, any sign can point to uh, any referent. It's just kind of this arbitrary uh, like thing that we agree upon. Right. Dartmouth is not necessarily at the mouth of the Dart River. Uh, if the Dart River moved, you wouldn't have to rename Dartmouth. Like, it's just, you know, this text happens to mean this thing. And so what that means then is you can have multiple signs that point to the same referent um, and that they, these things just become sort of synonyms for each other. But uh, what Frege pointed out was that in ancient Greece, they had these two heavenly bodies, which were the morning star and the evening star. Uh, which were, you know, a heavenly body that were seen in the beginning and the, the end of the night, uh, both of which happened to be Venus, but they didn't know that until a fair bit later. And so he said, well, we could construct something where we would say, you know, Homer, who was, you know, in ancient Greece, uh, thought the morning star was the morning star is this kind of, you know, tautological, obviously true sentence. But Homer thought the morning star was the evening star is not, right? Uh, these things these sentences are different, and therefore these different signs that point to the same thing are not just synonyms for each other. They differ in terms of their sense, which is uh, how they refer to that thing, right? And so I took that, and, and by the way, this is you know a, a pretty big oversimplification of a very nuanced subject. Um, I should note that the, the names chapter is available for free, and so if anyone wants to go into this, you should just go and download the, the sample chapter. Uh, but in software, you can kind of draw a similar thing, which is, you know, we don't have, as they do in philosophy, sort of counterfactuals, which is like, you know, a common one is like, what if Nixon wasn't Nixon, 
uh, because they talked about this a lot during the 70s, actually. Um, and they said, you know, what if Nixon weren't president? Would Nixon still be Nixon? And we don't have that, right? We don't have alternate universes in which our code base is different, but we do have this constantly changing set of, abs- uh, of implementations, right? We have these things that are hidden beneath the interface, and they change, and their nature changes, and yet we still use the same word to refer to them. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, if we go and we have a list and the list is a linked list or the list is a uh, sorted list or the list is an array or whatever, um, is it still a list, right? What is the thing that holds us together? What allows us to go and talk about these things interchangeably? And that thing is, uh, in my sort of uh, mapping of this philosophical concept onto software, uh, is the sense. The sense is the essential quality that is that sort of through line uh, that remains valid even as our software changes. And so if we talk about uh, like an identifier, a unique identifier, uh, often people will use a UUID, which is just a very large random number that is uh, extremely unlikely to have a collision. And, you know, we start talking about this, we say, okay, well, is our uh, ID represented as a number of this particular size, or is it just some sort of arbitrary string, or what are the things that we know to be true now versus the things that we believe to be, will be true forever or will be true for so long that like, you know, if it ever does change, we'll just change what we call it. And that's difficult, right? Because as uh, software implementers, we have to go and sort of cleave our, our understanding of something down the middle because we both understand what it's sort of externally visible semantics are, but also what it is underneath the covers. And when we're talking about it, we can't go and allow our, our understanding of the innards to sort of leak outside because now we are enshrining these incidental implementation details as permanent features of the thing, right? And so the sense is not something that our software enforces for us because it's captured not just by the, by the code, but by how we talk about the code and how we allow that code to change over time. And, you know, there are type systems, but there's no type system that constrains what the software can become. And so fundamentally, the sense exists in our head and nowhere else. And so this, again, gets back to this sort of intractable thing, right? Because, like, we are the stewards of not just the code, but what the code becomes. And therefore, the onus to, like, make these things change in a way which is, is you know, reasonable is entirely on us, right? It can't just be our tools. And that's, again, you know, probably clear uh, if you read it while it's written down, but that, that's sort of the gist of it, I think. Um, I, can't, I can't resist uh, the temptation to talk about um, an example of leaking out, which is, which is kind of a, a crude version, I think, a crude version of what you're describing. But um, internally, in LeanPub, we have a joke about uh, is gift uh, design. And so what happened was we discovered that, you know, so the, the code for when you're gifting a book has is underscore gift. And the way that was then presented in the UI with a little tick box to customers was is gift question <laughs> mark. Um, and we do, I won't go into it, but we do have other, other, and we sort of, you know, these things can become a shorthand um, within the internal discussion. So, you know, the, the, the sense of is gift in, in lean pub internal kind of coding discourse is this, you know, idea that, uh, um, you know, an example of things, the way you name things in the, in the code can actually affect uh, the way things sometimes get presented to people, which, like I said, is only a, a very crude and kind of, you know, marginal example of what uh, the deeper problem that you're describing. Um, but, but I mean, this happens everywhere, right? And, and what's interesting, I think, is that people 
users, end users, have gotten very used to having these weird little software-isms kind of leak out into the way that they interact with it. And to a certain extent, like as they become more, I don't know, uh, literate, I think that's probably the wrong word, but more familiar at least with the sort of idioms of software, these things become comprehensible, right? And so this again is a moving target. It's probably a generational moving target, not like a year to year one, but like still, you know, people probably will start to just kind of accept these weird little like quirks of the database schema becoming, you know, how these things are are uh, exposed, right? And and that that's maybe okay, but it's it's again a, an example of something I think that we don't spend very much time thinking about. Um, that reminds me actually of another example um, of of where naming can be so important is just in the in the not like there's there's one version of it is how is the customer out there in the environment interacting with it through the interface, but there's how how is um, how are things discussed internally. And how do you keep that distinction between what the user is experiencing and what you're saying in your code? And so we've got an example in the way LeanPub is coded that sort of preoccupies me where we used the, 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 the natural name for the thing in the code. And then when we're trying to talk about that aspect of LeanPub, I always get frustrated in a way my colleagues might not, but because I see this distinction being lost between what the customer is thinking when when I'm using this word to refer to the customer facing thing and what the customer thinks they're interacting with that's wholly distinct conceptually from whatever's going on in the code but those those we you know we we can end up being confused about what we're actually talking about changing or talking about doing because we you know use the natural what, what you would or I mean I'm sure it's not uh, coined by you but you would use a natural name to refer to a piece of code and and for this very reason or partly for this very reason you talk about the importance of using synthetic names. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I mean, the basic idea is, you know, uh, some names lend themselves to sort of a, a metaphorical or analogical kind of understanding, right? It's it's a word that we, we know, we know what it means in the real world. If we call someone a user, uh, that is sort of shaped by both the dictionary meaning, but also like all the times we've seen that word be used before in other code bases at other jobs we've had. And so uh, as a community, as a sort of a culture, we have like a fairly well, uh, decent understanding of what that means. Um, I, uh, you know, recently was uh, doing some consulting for a company that uh, handles other companies' customer data. And so uh, they cannot call their customers customers because that refers to this sort of thing. And so they, they use the word tenant. Tenant is uh, the people who are actually paying them money. And, you know, I, in my sort of conversations with them, I had to go and train myself to go and, like, do this. And when I said customer, to correct myself if I meant to correct myself. And, you know, so, so like, these sorts of things lend themselves to this kind of uh, – and that's actually a good – example of the, the distinction here, which is, you know, the customer is a very natural name. We know what that means, but it also in this particular context is misleading, right? The customer is actually their customer's customer. And so we have to come up with this new name, this thing that is not going to lend itself to that same sort of misunderstanding, which is tenant, which is sort of a, I mean, it has some uh, sort of reference to a, a meaning, but it's, it's largely just this kind of arbitrary term they chose, right? They could have called it anything. And uh, that's that's important in some cases, right? But like, to, if if someone comes in cold and someone starts talking about tenants to them, 
they won't know what they're talking about, right? That that word only makes sense if it's defined up front or defined within the first few sentences of like its use or whatever. And so, you know, in software uh, or in computer science, rather, you know, there's a, a very vibrant uh, sort of field of study in uh, type systems, type theory. And uh, this is built atop something called category theory, which has this uh, kind of menagerie of names that are called like monad or monoid or, you know, all these other sorts of things. And these names were chosen specifically because they don't mean anything, right? Specifically because they did not want to have them come laden with some sort of potential for misunderstanding. Um, and the problem, though, is that, you know, if you go and you create the synthetic name, this name which does not lend itself to this sort of uh, metaphorical understanding is that people try to make it metaphorical, which is why there's this whole ongoing joke about people making, you know, um, monad explanation blog posts where they try to go and uh, come up with an analogy. So like a monad is like a, a burrito, is like a, uh, a writing desk, is like a whatever, right? And um, that's, again, just because that's something that's very natural and very human. And so you like you would like to think, so uh, back to your sort of thing about like the analytic school, Frege actually was... Uh, you know, for most of his career was looking for what he called the, uh, the Begriffschrift, which was a perfect language, a language where at each sign had only a single referent. No referent had two signs. No sign had any ambiguity. Uh, there's a good book by Umberto Eco called The Search for the Perfect Language, which is like a, a bunch of different people trying to do this over the, the course of history. Um, and it's, again, the very understandable kind of instinct because you see uh, this sort of muddiness and you want to replace it with clarity, but we don't think clearly. People don't think clearly. People think in a way which is fuzzy and uh, sort of intersecting and makes these sort of broad intuitive leaps. And when we're creating something which is an interface for them, and that's what software is, it's an interface for sort of how we reason about these problems, uh, we want to build on top of that, not try to like cut that off at the knees. Um, it's, it's funny you brought up the example of monads because, uh, having, having, when I came first to, uh, to software startup world, um, uh, I, I did have a little bit, as we talked about already, I had a little bit of a background in philosophy. And so I knew what a monad was from Leibniz. Uh, and so I was like, I mean, like my own version of that joke, just incredibly confused because the word actually did did have some meaning for me. And it took me a while to realize, oh, like this, like, like you were describing, like, you know, oh, this is actually being used because it can be an empty vessel. Um, uh, and, and that, but this whole discussion reminds me of something really uh, interesting that I've thought about a little bit in the past, which is that there's a certain level of specificity beyond which it is impolite or unconventional to go when one is using language. Mm -hmm. Um, and I find this to be the source of all kinds of problems in day-to-day -day life that people, because they're unwilling to go to, to, to be more rigorous in their use of like just day-to-day -day language or in even, and especially when you start dealing with teams, you know what, a word can take on a certain meaning, but then someone might use it to mean something else briefly in a conversation. And I've seen this happen. If you don't let it go, if, if you do let it go, then it in like a year later, two years later, or the next time you have a meeting with the big, you know, the big boss or whatever, that slippage in usage can come back to bite you 
and can come back to bite your team. Um, and, but at the same time, it will not come back to bite you. It will bite you right in the moment. If you go, ah, oh, by the way, you use the word such and such to mean such and such when actually it means such and such. Like, unless you're lawyers, uh, you know, people are probably going to get actually angry with that or laugh at you. And, and so you actually take a personal hit if you're trying to protect the team. And, and it, it's got this sort of like, it's got this, this feedback effect of negativity because it's, it's the bare, it's, the problem itself is one that people are uncomfortable tr even trying to solve. And so bringing it up not only brings up the, the problem, but that problematic aspect of it, if that makes any sense. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm demonstrating the very problem in the way I'm trying to describe it. No, I mean, but it's, it's, it's really a big deal. And I mean, uh, as I've gotten more senior, like, you know, there are some sort of predictable things that come with that, which is that you spend more time in meetings, you spend more time in kind of like broader strategic kind of conversations. But like a thing that I wasn't expecting, and, you know, I, I don't think this is just because I'm like a fussy person, is that I become sort of the informal defender of the nomenclature. Uh, because I have the standing to do that where people are not going to go and, you know, uh, bite my head off if I go and do this. And, you know, there, there's a... There's a polite way to do that and a kind of uh, impolite way to do that. And I think that there, there's a little bit of kind of social grace required to do that well. But I, at the end of the day, if you don't make people habitually use the right word, then they'll, they'll start, it'll start slipping to emails. It will start being in like little side conversations. And uh, eventually you are talking past each other, sometimes in a way which is like fundamental and dangerous. And so, uh, you know, there's not, but like, there's not, our brains aren't constructed as proofs. You can't go and, you know, first day say, here are the lemmas that underlie our, our personal conversations with each other, right? Here, here is the, uh, you know, thing. I mean, it, it's not tractable. But it does give you some understanding of like why Wittgenstein was like writing, you know, the way that he did, because he wanted to write in a way that didn't brook any ambiguity. And so, I, and I think that that, that has value in moderation. And so I think that, again, this is back to this thing, which is I said, you know, either software is mathematics or it's literature. And obviously it's both. And you have to go and kind of allow them to break through in ways that are healthy in like different parts of your project, right? Sorry for the nerdy distinction, but were you referring to the Wittgenstein of the Tractatus or Tractatus? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Sorry, yeah. I, I should I should have been clearer. Yes. No, no, that makes, that makes <laughs> sense. Um, uh, just so anyone listening who knows the distinction between Wittgenstein one and Wittgenstein two knows which which Wittgenstein we were referring to using that using that word. Um, yeah, that reminds me of uh, um, I've got this sort of little saying about people who stand in doorways. Um, their experience of the world of other people is one that's kind of fraught. Uh, and if you don't know, it's because you're always standing in the doorway or stopping at the bottom of the escalator or something like that. You know, you're going to think the world is different than it really is. It's just that way for you because you don't attend to or you're not cer certain aspects of your behavior or you're not circumspective enough. And I, I, I like that. And now like, there's something about like, you know, I've got, I've, I've, I'm sure you've got, you know, encountered people who say things like, why does this always happen to me? And it's like, well, why don't you think about that? You know what I mean? But, but with this, this problem about universal problem about 
looseness with language um, uh, just becomes even more exacerbated, obviously, in the context of software where looseness of language makes something not work, like li literally not work. And you can't, right. kind, of, kind of can't, it, it's, it's sort of easy, an easier environment to correct the problem because you actually can't get away with it beyond a certain point. But it, but it is that ambiguity and that looseness is extremely valuable in the earlier phases of software. Um, and actually this, this is sort of an opportunity for you to talk about this because, you know, I was talking about this kind of idea, this, this, uh, resonance, this sort of self-recognition I found in certain things and the, my sort of frustration and not being able to uh, explain that. And um, it took me most of my time that I spent like kind of reading and trying to do research for this book. But I eventually found this thing, uh, this book called The Tacit Dimension by Michael Polanyi. And Polanyi was a, uh, a chemist who later in his career decided he wanted to become a philosopher of science. And he... Uh, he was uh, trying to go and talk about what is it that precedes the hypothesis, right? Because if you look at Popper, you look at Kuhn, you look at all these other people who were trying to talk about science and the scientific method, they would talk about, okay, well, you have this thing, you falsify it, and, and if you can't falsify it, it becomes a new prevailing hypothesis, and then you know there's a paradigm shift and all that sort of stuff, which is sort of downstream of that. But what they didn't talk about is, well, okay, so where does that hypothesis come from? Because you could have any hypothesis, right? There are there are infinite hypotheses, and yet you chose this one, which happened to be better than the prevailing one, sometimes. And um, people didn't talk about that. They it was kind of a, a kind of a impolite, and it's making a rude noise in like you know a large gathering, right? Like it's it's, uh, it's something that just wasn't really spoken about, and. The way that he talked about this was what he called tacit knowledge, which is something that we understand, but we don't understand directly. We understand it through something else that we do. And so, you know, the example that I've given is, you know, uh, I'm speaking right now. Um, clearly, I know how to make sounds with my vocal cords, but I'm not focusing on that. I'm focusing on my words. Right. I, I, I'm thinking past the physical act of speech to the actual ideas that I'm trying to convey. And I think past that so readily that I don't actually know what I'm doing not in any sort of way that I could articulate or try to refine. And the only reason I would do that is if I wasn't speaking well enough, right? If I had some sort of impairment or if I were a professional stage actor or a singer or something like that, where, you know, simply being adequate is not enough. And I think this is true of most things. And we have this kind of inarticulate understanding of things where we are sort of in a vague kind of nebulous range. And we're trying to winnow that down to something which is more definite. But the expectation that we arrive fully formed out of like our heads with that, that the software that we write is absurd. And I think that similarly, the my expectation that if I read something and it, it, it spoke to me, it affected me, the fact that I could go and affect someone else with that, right, uh, is also not reasonable. I have to be able to distill that and to sort of turn that back and uh, kind of be able to walk someone through this intuitive leap that I just made. Um, there's actually a, a, a fun thing that I learned is uh, the root of the word heuristic comes from the Greek uh, heureka, as in I found it. Um, huh. And uh, and I think that that's what it is. A heuristic is this, this intuitive leap to something that seems to work and we don't know why. Uh, but that's not the end of the 
like kind of story, the next step is for you to piece your way back, find a path back to this place that you sort of left so that you can take someone there with you. Right. Speaking of uh, things um, being fully formed or not fully formed, I think that's a good opportunity now that our interview has reached feature length um, to move on to the last part of the interview and talk about your experience writing and in particular your experience writing uh, on, on the LeanPub platform. Um, I believe you published your book in progress uh, and you marked it 100% complete uh, very recently. So congratulations. Uh, 90, 90%. 90% I'm, I, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and I wanted to ask you a little bit, a bit about that. What, why did you choose to publish your book while it was in progress or, and, and still is in progress? Um, well, there are a couple of things that went into this. So I didn't go to LeanPub because it allowed for the incremental publishing. I went to LeanPub because I couldn't find anyone who had gone through the existing technical publishers and had anything good to say about them. Um, and in fact, I heard stories from a lot of people who had written books and said, uh, specifically, if I did it again, I would go on LeanPub. And I, I, so that was my first encounter with you know, LeanPub as a, a thing. Um, and I looked on it, and I knew uh, Brian Merrick, who I, I know you interviewed fairly recently, and uh, saw that he had published a few things on there. And so I asked him if he had any sort of complaints, and he said no. And so at that point, then, I sort of had the choice of, do I just go and write the thing and wait until it's done and then just sort of put it up there in all of its glory, or do I kind of do this a little bit more incrementally? And... Frankly, I think I'm just kind of used to now through like my open source work kind of uh, working incrementally in public. Um, but also after I wrote the first chapter, um, I had sort of a moment where, you know, I was kind of pulling a lot of things together there and it reflected how I thought about it. And I was excited about it because I think it was the best articulation of my understanding of naming that I had arrived at, like the act of writing it had forced me to make this sort of tacit knowledge explicit, but I had no idea if it would work for anybody else. I had no idea if this reflected how other people thought about names or if they would find it to be a useful sort of approach. And so for me, it was just kind of a sanity check because I showed it to a, like a few of my, uh, you know, closer friends and they're like, yeah, sure. It's fine. But like, that's, that's also not, I mean, that's a, that's a narrow group people who by and large are about as experienced as I am. And that also, that that's not a, a great sort of sample to work with. And so I figured the best thing to do was just to put it out there. And so my first version of the book that was published was one of four chapters complete. The first chapter was completely free. So there's no reason for anyone to pay me any money for it. Um, but then people did for some reason. And so I took that as a good sign and kind of went on from there. But that was, uh, that was two years ago. So I've been working on this for a while. Yeah, it's interesting you uh, mentioned uh, something being available available for free and people paying for it anyway. Um, you know, some of LeanHub's most, uh, it's something that people often find surprising, and we did a little bit too when it first happened, but, um, you know, some of our most uh, successful books in terms of revenue are free. Mm -hmm. have, a, have, a min well, sorry, have a minimum price of free. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that, you know, uh, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Uh, to to watch happen and and sort of it's something I enjoy I enjoy thinking about even though it's sort of difficult to kind of get without polling people and even then it would be you know indeterminate but it's difficult to get data around and and it seems to be partly at least my pet theory is that it, there's two driving factors behind that one is um, the royalty rate that LeanPub pays that we mm -hmm. put on display as like we show two things when you're paying uh, 
you pay and author earns. Um, and one thing we discovered shortly after implementing that was that people were sliding around the author earns because the difference between author earns and you pay uh, wasn't that high. So mm-hmm. we get people paying odd prices like 1167 for a book because that, you know, given our royalty rate turned out to be 10 bucks. Right. Um, a price no one would ever type in, uh, you know. Um, and the other thing is that that giving people that choice with the variable pricing model where you can have a minimum price of free or, or something else, and then you can have a suggested price. Um, giving pe- my pet theory is that giving people that autonomy, that option to choose, actually encourages them to pay, to pay money. Uh, because they, 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 they then feel not like it's being taken, but like it's being given. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true. And I don't know if I could prove it if I were asked to by, you know, someone at Google or something like that. But you know, that that's my sense of why that happens. Well, and I, I think it's very curious, because, you know, frankly, I hadn't thought about the price of a book that carefully up until the point where I started writing one. But I mean, you know, even for a book like mine, which is fairly short, it's only 25,000 words. um, It's still a pretty significant investment of the reader's time. And given any sort of hypothetical hourly rate for this person, um, you know, the time that they're investing in the book is far more expensive than anything that they could possibly pay. Um, And of course, you know, mine is in the 25 to 35 dollar range which I don't think I could go and I could double that or triple that and be like, well, you know, it's, it's still cheap compared to your own time because people don't think about it that way. But um, I do think that uh, in technical books specifically, it is a little bit easier to make a case for, you know, here is the dollar amount of value I'm providing for you. And I think a, a lot of your most successful books, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong about this, are technical in nature. Yes. And I think that that's a, uh, I mean, that's, that's reasonable, but I think that also, you know, again, you know, people are not fully rational. I have had some people tell me, you know, uh, how on earth could you expect me to pay this much? This book is so short. And I'm like, well, you know, do you want me to use up more of your time? Like, I don't like, it's a, it's a interesting, slightly irrational kind of uh, space that you're navigating there. Um, my last question, uh, it sounds like it might be the end of the workday where you are. Um, <laughs> so my last question is, um, uh, if we could build one thing for you or fix one thing for you, uh, what would you ask us to do? Um, <laughs> this is super low level, but, uh, there you, in the markdown formatting, uh, you can use like the back ticks to, to represent code formatting. Um, and it'll still do line splits there. So occasionally it'll like go and hyphenate things for me and stuff like that. And that makes it, I think, harder to ultimately understand what is kind of going on there because it's not clear if that's the thing with the hyphen or if the hyphen is like, you know, just part of the the sort of publishing. Um, and, but I mean, like, you know, I have to say, uh, I'm very happy with the degree to which Lean Pub does not allow me to be fussy. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the sort of story of uh, Knuth um, sort of trying to write a book about software and then spending a decade writing software to help him write a book. Uh, and, uh, that's how, uh, tech came about. I think you guys actually, uh, use law tech to, uh, to do your sort of stuff. So, I mean, uh, I'm very prone to those sorts of yak shaves. And I think that I probably would get very deep on the questions of formatting if I was allowed to. And so, you know, that's, that's a small, small, uh, complaint. I think that for the most part, I like the fact that, um, I don't have very much control. I have to focus on the text and just kind of let that uh, stand for itself. 
Uh, thanks for that answer. That's actually, I mean, you know, as, as, as you know, that is the reason that we do um, uh, sort of uh, on purpose not uh, give everybody everything that they want. Um, and it's sometimes hard to, hard to, you know, give that message. I mean, I know I, I know I personally can end up in the formatting rabbit hole for a long time procrastinating. Um, and so, yeah, it's always this very fine line that we have to walk between um, giving people everything that they want and not giving them everything that they want because that it, it might be what they want, but it's not what they need. Um, right. And, uh, and yeah, I think, I think what you're talking about is an instance where you need to manually line wrap um, uh, in order to make the hyphenating not happen. I'm not a computer programmer book author myself, but my colleague Peter has written a few and uh, he's got some good answers for that. So if anyone's interested <laughs> in, that, in that detail of why LeanPub works that way, you can email us at hello at leanpub.com. Yeah, yeah. And, and please, I mean, I, if to anyone listening who's sort of on the fence, um, you, you really lose nothing by trying it out. And I think that, you know, even if you were to want to go and have sort of finer control over this um, as a platform to go and sort of build this up and validate whether or not what you're writing has value to people, you know, there's nothing better that I'm currently aware of. So, you know, I, I'm very grateful that you guys have done what you've done and have made the choices that you have because I think that it's it's helped me. I mean, I, I've made slow progress, but I think I could very likely have made no progress at all under other circumstances. Well, on that note, uh, thank you very much for that. Um, thank you uh, for taking the time to do this interview. I really enjoyed it and for being game for uh, all the questions on so many different things. Um, and thanks, uh, uh, lastly, for being a Lean Pub author. Yeah, uh, well, thank you. Uh -huh. Thanks.